Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, podcasts on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard. And this week we are going to talk about the relationship between Europe and Africa. Almost a year ago, the European Union's Commission's president, Ursula von der Leyen, made her first business trip outside the EU and she chose to visit the African Union headquarters in Addis Ababa. She claimed that 2020 would be a decisive year in African-European relations. German Minister for Economic Cooperation and Development also talked at the beginning of the year about a treaty of the century, which could be concluded at the AU-EU summit, the African Union-European Union summit. However, with the pandemic, this summit has been postponed, priorities have shifted, and the question of Europe's relations with Africa only played a very minor role in Ursula von der Leyen's State of the Union speech in September. So where do we stand in terms of building this strategic partnership between Europe and the African continent? What are the challenges that lie ahead, maybe the new opportunities? What impact do wider geopolitical changes have on the relationship between Europe and Africa? To help me make sense of this, I have an all-star cast. We have Mark Mallet-Brown, who is Lord Mallet-Brown, who, amongst many other important positions that he has occupied over the last years, includes being Minister of State for, in the British Foreign Office, uh, covering Africa and Asia, and being the Deputy Secretary General of the United Nations under Kofi Annan, running the UNDP, as well as a very active life in a lot of non-governmental organisations that are working in Africa, on Africa. Anyway, that's just the, the beginning. We don't have long enough with our 30 minutes to cover all of Mark's qualifications for this podcast. Also down the line, we have Fatin Agad, who is a senior advisor to the African Union's High Representative on AU-EU negotiations. Welcome, Fatin. And finally, we have Theo Murphy, who is the head of ECFR's Africa program. Thank you very much to all of you for joining. Why don't we start with the big picture? And maybe we can go to you, Mark, because you've been looking at these questions about Europe's relationship with Africa for, for quite a long time now, long before it became very fashionable for Brussels conferences to look at the AU relationship. Where do you see our current situation? How close are we to the strategic partnership that everyone talks about? Look, three points, really. The first is a historic point that, you know, Europe and Africa are condemned by geography to have their fates intertwined. And I think, you know, for a long time, more thoughtful Europeans have recognised that the policy and commercial links with Africa are at least as critical for Europe as they are for Africa. There is, you know, whether it is around migration flows or trade flows or investment flows, there is an interdependence between these two regions that has got to be at the core of any successful policy. The second is that in the Trump era, this sort of Africa has become once more almost a kind of scramble for Africa, 21st century style competition between China and the US. China with some really thoughtful, interesting investment and trade policies. The US threatening a counterpart push of its own, but it was more threat than reality. But what it means is that Europe trying to push through in the middle with a more allegedly dispassionate, objective, pro-Africa development strategy has been sort of handicapped by this two-power competition around it, which tends to be the lens through which everything's seen. And then just final third point, I mean, this is a difficult moment for Africa, nothing to do with Europe. We've had a handful of difficult elections, Guinea-Cote d'Ivoire, uh, Tanzania, major sort of 
trouble in the two biggest economies, Nigeria and South Africa, in Nigeria expressed in these student protests, and also trouble in Africa's third largest country, Ethiopia, with the whole sort of dispute between Tigray and the centre, you know, getting pretty difficult and ragged. So we're talking at a moment where there's this long historical relationship between Europe and Africa, but there's a lot of current stuff to sort through as well. Thanks, Mark. And Fatin, you have been looking at these issues very closely as well from the African side. From your perspective, what do you think the status between the AU and the EU relationships are? What expectations do African countries have from Europe now? Is Europe being provincialised in the African mind? Let me put it this way. I think when we met in, in 2007 in Lisbon, there was a lot of enthusiasm that we're finally moving into a new form of cooperation. And I think more than, what is it now, 13 years later, the question is, were we able to rethink the relationship in a way that takes into account the factors that, that Mark rightly pointed out to, plus the challenges of the future? And I think the assessment, if one is very very lucid would be to say that uh, the uh, result has been at best very mixed. So we started with a, a lot of enthusiasm. I think reality caught up. but And I think reality caught up in the sense that both of the continents are, are, are facing challenges of their own. We have a resourcing issue as to, to be able to really support the partnership and allow it to, to deliver very concretely. And so we've been grappling with these issues issues and add to that the geopolitical context. So we've been grappling with these issues without necessarily sitting, I would say, together honestly and trying to find a a solution to that jointly. So Theo, what do you think the EU needs to do now if it's going to overcome some of the disappointment and scepticism that Fatten just raised, evoked? I think the EU needs to bring its approach, its policies, its institutions all into line with the, with the new realities in Africa. If we go back a little bit to what Mark Malik Brown was saying, you know, in a way, he was covering two different paradigms vis-a-vis Africa that have existed, let's say, over the last two decades. The former one that we had, the older one, traditional view on Africa, is looking at Africa as a place of challenges, of problems, of conflicts, of things that, that need to be addressed. And that, that view produced a certain set of European institutions. It defined how European ministries and other instruments and engaged with a continent. But as the continent has evolved, it has started to become um, very much a place of opportunity. That's the one aspect. That's the one paradigm shift. That might have left Europe plenty of time to catch up and make this change were it not that Africa and the rest of us exists in a global community. And some members of that global community namely China, recognized the opportunity in Africa, I would say, with more alacrity than Europe did. So about a decade ago, we saw China coming in with a completely different approach, not bothering with all of the old traditional European engagements in Africa, but orientating itself very clearly towards opportunity, economic opportunity and political opportunity as well. So where we are right now, I think, with the EU's strategy towards Africa is trying to grapple with this paradigm shift, trying to reorient our tools and instruments um, and do so in a way that doesn't completely abandon the positive aspects from the past engagement. 
So in a way, what Europe needs to do is find a way to create a strategy that is both you know, economic opportunity influenced by that outlook, but also retains the positive aspects of stabilization, development, humanitarian, and puts them all into one package. I think for the moment, that's a challenge that we haven't quite managed to meet. So, Mark, you've thought a lot about some of the economic possibilities in the relationship and thinking about how to make it more grown up. But it seems quite hard for Europe to get beyond thinking Africa, either in terms of migration and how to suppress migration. Or if you're French, there's the war on terror as a kind of second uh, dimension, which many other member states have now been dragged into. How can one get from where we are now to a different kind of relationship? Well, look, I think Theo's two paradigms is very insightful. I mean, the European Union in its own document, uh, latest policy document, I think said there are 30 African countries which are middle or high income, and there are 36 African countries uh, which are conflict prone. And obviously, therefore, there's an overlap between those, those two groups. And it is this sort of, if you like, divergence of path in Africa, which is, has proved so challenging for Europe, which you know, tends to be rather schizophrenic about it, as you say. And you compare it with China, which uninhibited by, you know, the sins of the past, the memories of the past, just comes in with an exciting investment offer. And people say, oh, well, it's sort of all heavy infrastructure and it's coal-fired power plants. And there is a lot too much of all of the above. But it's also, you know, Jack Ma with his entrepreneurship awards for Africa, which are kind of it's sort of staged, almost like in the old days, a, a Trump TV sort of awards thing for business leaders. And, you know, he's got a remarkable panel of Africans who are, in, you know, judging these, these Ma Entrepreneurship Awards. And you compare it to the sort of lumbering face of Western business in Africa, which is still the GEs and the Exxons and the other sort of big companies of the old industrial economy. And you see that China has just got a little bit more feel for where Africa's going, which is almost certainly going to be a very services-heavy economy, you know, more sort of services and smokestacks in a way, a great reliance on renewable energies coming on to replace the dependence on old energy sources. And in that sort of sense of a sort of really dynamic economic transformation. You know, there just simply is not the imagination in the way Europe is engaging with Africa. There is too much of the old headache view of the continent as a troubled continent and simply not enough about the opportunity and excitement of this very young continent, you know, finding its own particular way, its own particular path to develop. Would you agree with that, Fatin? Absolutely. I think Mark referred to the key word, which is imagination. You know, I often argue that when it comes to Europe-Africa relations, there is a very serious need to reimagine the partnership and imagine it beyond the China factor. I think there's to some degree a too much focus uh, on China and Africa as a threat, but not enough is being done to understand why China has has succeeded so far in making inroads where, I mean, for instance, where the European private sector, out of lack of interest or out of lack of access, has not been able to make. There is now, for instance, a heavy focus on uh, the debt issue, the, uh, the China, the Chinese role in it. I think a lot can be said in terms of how do we resolve that particular 
particular issue. But I think it's important to also try to take a step back to understand why there is such a high, a high level of debt for some countries. And there, I think we need to desegregate a bit when we speak of Africa. It's not the entire continent, but for some countries. But if one looks, for instance, at, at the loans that China has been providing to, to countries, half of that, well, I would say a quarter of that, uh, and, and the data is available out there, a quarter of that goes to energy infrastructure, the other quarter goes to transport. So it's really about infrastructure which happens to be a very important element or piece of the puzzle if we're talking about the economic future of Africa. And these are areas specifically where Europe was not able to have something concrete put on the table, uh, despite the different requests or, or promises. So so I think there is it's very important to try and reimagine the relationship. I think even in areas where Europe possibly does not have the resources to match China, there's a need to be honest about that and try to find other ways where Europe can put something on the table, but also get something back for it. I think we Do often you want to be tend to... a bit more concrete on that. Yeah. Mean? Yes. I mean, to, to give you one particular example, for instance, we often forget that Africa is Europe's third uh, trading partner after China and the US. And yet the focus in terms of trade and, and the Europe is Africa's first. But the focus often when it comes to trade has been on these economic partnership agreements, which have had major limitations, be it in terms of value chains, being in terms of quality of products, etc., etc. I think there is now a potential or possibility with the African free trade, uh, the continental free trade area to provide a larger uh, a larger market, but also when it comes to Africa's exports to, to Europe in an age where we are really trying to think about how do we optimize our value chains. And I think the CFTA does offer an option there for the EU. And officially, yes, the EU says it does support CFTA, but with the economic partnership agreements. As, as its basis. So I think we need to, I would uh, say, stop dragging dead horses and try to look forward at where the opportunity is. I think Africa can benefit from of an engagement of Europe when it comes to the free trade area, continental free trade area, and vice versa, as I just explained. So Theo, you've written a commentary on our website saying that Europe's losing the great power competition in Africa. What do you think the the kind of added value is that Europeans could offer to Africans? Yeah, I mean, in that commentary, I was looking at the relationship between the, the U.S. and China as the two superpowers in Africa and how particularly the way the U.S. has framed its recent engagement as being one of countering China in Africa. So not making the relationship between the U.S. and China the principal one, but the, the China-U.S. Um, relationship, the principal one with Africa as a playing field. I think within that context, it's important, but it's also very tricky for Europe to find a way to be active in the space that Africa has a need for. So this is looking at infrastructure investment, private investment from Europe's private sector, but also in terms of connectivity and, and doing so in a way that avoids the unwanted or the unintended perception that it's taking one side in that global superpower competition so that it's aligning itself unintentionally with China or with the US. My point was basically that that lens had been placed over the continent because of that competition. And the way the competition is being played out is via these kind of 
economic and connectivity issues. It's not like it was in the Cold War, where this was proxy conflicts via armed groups. Now it's economic. So we've been talking about the relationship for quite a long time and about how the paradigms are shifting. And I think there are some kind of big new issues which we're having to grapple with at the moment. One is something that's already been mentioned, which is these questions about debt. China has been making loans left, right and centre and encouraging countries to join its Belt and Road Initiative. But now there are there are issues with repayments of some of these debts. And it'd be interesting to hear how that kind of affects the relationship. Secondly, it's quite remarkable that we've gone for 20 minutes without talking about COVID, but that's obviously going to be a big issue. And as we just heard, vaccine might become a reality. How does that fit into this question? The question of, of healthcare and Europe's contribution to African healthcare systems and vaccines towards other diseases has been an important part of the relationship. It'd be interesting to hear about how you see that now. And there are also these questions about the sort of long-term economic, other types of uh, relations, not least in the, the, the questions to do with regulation. I know that in Brussels, people are very focused on whether Africa will align more with China or whether it could be more aligned with Europe on questions to do with GDPR and data equivalents and some of the things which are going to be important in the next few decades. Mark, do you want to give us your perspective on some of those? I mean, I think first on the debt, I think if you were at the China end of this argument, China's sort of successful path through Africa would look a lot less secure than it does to beleaguered Europeans or Americans making the case. Because, you know, there are several real sort of Achilles heel for China, of which one is the debt issue, where, you know, it causing in a country like Zambia, for example, which has always had an anti-China element to its politics, but which now faces a massive debt crisis. You know, this is a cause of a lot of sort of anger and, you know, the fact is the way the solution is, I mean, what the Chinese are doing, for those who aren't aware, is when it's convenient to treat its debt as private debt and therefore not subject to a public debt repayment standstill, treat it as private. But in terms of the conditions under which the debt's been extended and the security of guarantee of repayment, it was always treated as public debt. So, you know, they're trying to have their cake and eat it. And it is causing a lot of exasperation across the continent and will be solved by a much wider approach to debt sustainability in regions such as Africa. The IMF leadership particularly will be unshackled once Trump is gone and there's a more sympathetic leadership in the White House. You're going to see a lot more movement around SDRs for Africa, around a much broader approach to debt standstills until the economies come back. Just on your second point, of, of and, and the Chinese will get caught up in that and be forced, I think, to comply with how the rest of the world is treating. But at the moment, they're hiding behind behind the fact that the private debtors generally are trying to get a free ride on this and not offer debt relief, and that's got to be solved. But I think on the COVID point, look, I mean, it's an interesting story because actually the apparent public health impact of COVID has been less than was feared. And that is in part due to neighbours at the AU-backed African CDC, which has been one of the great success stories of this crisis. A much higher level of intercountry coordination on COVID in Africa than in any other region, probably. And within countries, the robustness of often very simple and underfunded, but nevertheless community-based public health systems to do their equivalent of track and trace has far outrun the capacities of an American health system or a British NHS. So they've really scored on this. 
That doesn't mean that their public health systems don't need massive extra investment and reinforcement. They do. But I think the real impact COVID in Africa is an economic one. Remittance earnings down, tourism down, fossil fuels, export income down. This has been a real hard hit and we've yet to see the worst of it, which will come in 2021. And perhaps with a new Biden administration in Washington, that will mobilize a sort of re-engagement both of the US, but I hope of Europe, in some imaginative new policy support as we go forward. Thank you very much. Fatim, maybe we can get a bit more concrete now and and return to this whole question about the African Union, uh, European Union relationship. There were high hopes for this summit, which has been postponed. But what do you think the the next steps are for that relationship? Are you optimistic to see uh, AU-EU relations improve soon? I think there's no other choice, to be honest, for for both regions to sit down and and discuss the future relationship. So I think sooner or later, I think we'll get to that point. I think what would be important, however, is to recognize that both Europe and Africa do have an agenda in mind. And it's really the challenge is often to uh, sit down. And there are quite important dossiers, I mean, on the table. We've been discussing now COVID. I would fully agree with Mark that the real challenge is in the future and avoiding short-term responses, but really looking at the long-term. There are other issues. I mean, you mentioned regulations, for instance, around GDPR and the question of whether that should be limited to EU Africa, whether we need to rather work for towards a, a, a global regulatory system uh, potentially sponsored by the UN rather than limiting it to an alignment to GDPR because that would have major uh, geopolitical considerations also. And there's the issue of climate and whether or not aligning to the Green Deal for Africa is possible. I think, again, there there is an international agreement, the Paris Agreement, that that should remain the focus. So there are a lot of nitty-gritties to be discussed besides the broad themes. And I think the sooner we sit around the table and, and you know, have that discussion, uh, the quicker we'll be able to move towards a that that deal of the century that the German minister was of the decade that the German minister was talking about. Thea, why don't we give you the last word on what we can hope from uh, from the the treaty of the century? Well, as regards the deal of the century. It's important to recognize that global events have intruded upon the previous focus of the AU-EU strategy. Occasioned by COVID, there's now a prioritization on the African side of two topics. The first is the COVID-related debt crisis, and the second is the vaccine. In terms of the first, the EU can't directly take action on the debt because it is not part of the G20, which is the operational body for this matter. But it can show solidarity with Africa in terms of asking all of Africa's creditor countries to play by the rules. And if everyone plays by the rules, it will be possible for Europe and others to invest more in debt suspension. The second issue on the vaccine is one of access to it. There is a worrying scenario where better resourced countries will secure the vaccine for themselves ahead of other parts of the world, and Africa sees the possibility of it falling behind and being among the last to receive the vaccine with untold consequences that we all already are familiar with, economic and otherwise. I think the question that is coming now from Africa is what will Europe be able to do to help Africa ensure that it doesn't end up at the back of the queue? We will come back to this topic, I'm sure, many, many times, but it's been fantastic talking to you about this 
important set of relationships, which I think will only get more important as uh, we go further into the 21st century. But we have one thing left to do on this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. Mark, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? A remarkable, although huge, doorstopper of a book. Uh, Frederick Longueval's first volume of JFK, his biography of Kennedy, which somehow manages to be new and original, not just about Kennedy the person, but about the context of America at that time. And just one insight. I just last night was reading the the, the fall of MacArthur, uh, the whole sort of anti-communist sort of leadership in the US. And there's a real parallel to Trump. This sort of rose through television and fell by television once he was seen as having overexposed himself. So, you know, I think McCarthyite era in America, the way it came to an end, may have some similarities to what may now start happening to Trump and his constituency. It may turn as quickly as it formed. Let's hope so. Yeah, absolutely. Fatim, what's on your bookshelf? Well, I'm currently reading a book entitled Shaping the Future of Power that actually deals with the soft power of China and Africa and how they were able to, to attract, ensure alliances uh, with, with some in the uh, power, in the political elite in, in Africa. It's an interesting book, I think, from a historical point of view also to try and uh, understand. You know, we often define power in terms of hard power. Uh, in international relations, so this is uh, this is uh, refreshing uh, to uh, to look at it from soft power perspective. Great. What about you, Theo? Well, here in uh, Berlin, we're back on lockdown light, which means more nights in with all the children. So I, I have two actually with the with the children. We've just reread all of C.S.'s Lewis's Narnia Chronicles down to the last one, and I was surprised to read with fresh eyes that I think the fall of Narnia is occasioned by a mis a disinformation campaign. <laughs> so I don't know if I've been following a little bit too much Russian news lately, but uh, C.S. Lewis there seems to be prescient. And then when the kids are all asleep, I've discovered recently a new podcast from Politico called uh, Global Translations, uh, which is really interesting. It takes a lot of deep dives into basically various facets of inter interconnection and interconnectivity. So looking at all these kind of issues that we see manifesting in, in Africa, but taking a global perspective on them. Great. Those sound wonderful. And I uh, have just started reading a book which was sent to me last week by John Eikenbury. Um, he sent me his latest book, which is called A World Safe for Democracy, Liberal Internationalism and the Crises of Global Order, which is, I think, a really interesting, somewhat anguished set of reflections by somebody who did a lot to theorise the idea of the liberal international order, looking at how it came into being and, and some of the major challenges from inside and outside in recent years. And it's, it's very interesting to see how John tries to, to come to terms with a world that doesn't look like the one which he was promoting for a very long period of time. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, uh, please do let your friends, family and other associates know about it by tweeting about it, writing about it on your social media page or ours, but above all, by heading to whatever platform you used to download this podcast on and giving us a positive review and a five-star rating. We will put links up to all the publications that we mentioned on our website at www.ecfr.eu. But for now, from Faten Agad, Mark Mallet-Brown, Theo Murphy, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. 
The researcher of this week's podcast is Lucy Halpenthal, and our editor is Julia Bazzano. Thank you very much.